Welcome to the 348th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk about COVID and COVID vaccination in North Korea with my guests, Ki Park, Si Yunhee Ryder, and Nagi Shafiq. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Today's a special COVID Calls episode at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And also, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 29th, 2021, there are 4,767,576 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is Mission Viejo Nurse 71 worked through pandemic died of COVID-19. This was written by Terry Sforza for the Orange County Register and appeared September 17, 2021. They met in 1968 at the Leaky Tiki near Sacramento. She was nursing a single Coke with a friend because they only had a quarter between them. He was in the Air Force, there to see a friend play drums in a rock and roll band. Turned out they both loved to dance. Barbara Green and Steve Dark married in 1970 and had a tiny wedding in Anaheim that cost all of $500, dress included. They bought a house in Irvine, had two sons, and then Barbara Dark went back to school to become a registered nurse. Caring for the sick was her life's mission the very reason she was put on earth, she decided. And it was why she continued working through the pandemic, even with a type of blood cancer. It wasn't clear how a COVID-19 vaccine would affect her. She didn't get one. Her faith was fierce. Days after celebrating their 51st wedding anniversary on July 4th, Dark began to feel ill. She fought it as best she could. She didn't want to miss a visit with her grandchildren, but once they left, she went to urgent care. She tested positive for COVID-19 and was admitted to Providence Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo, where she had worked for decades. Dark worried about those who came to check on her and when she was unable to talk would write, how are you today, on the pad beside her bed. She rallied after five weeks in the hospital, but her lungs were weak. She suffered subsequent infections on, on September the 6th, 2021, she died. Dark was 71. Well, she was doing God's work, said her husband, Steve Dark. She believed her purpose was to care for people, and she did. Nothing was ever about her. It was about everyone else. Those who worked with Dark are devastated. She was a preceptor and mentor to many of us nurses, said friend Karen Hilberg, a real inspiration. So many of us started as new nurses and were guided by Barbara. She lived to help others. It was her life's calling. It's a real loss for us. B. Elkins said Dark is a special part of who she is. She gave me the most important gift, finding a way to just laugh so hard when you want to cry. 
She was an angel long before she became an angel, Elkins wrote in an online tribute. In the cardiac unit, Dark took Laura Partridge under her wing and taught her one of the most important lessons, that there are things you just can't control, so you have to let it go. The movie Frozen was popular at the time, and the two would belt out its signature song, Let It Go, she wrote in a tribute. Barbara was loved by her patients and all the caregivers and physicians who had the pleasure of knowing her and working alongside her, said Carrie Arneth Miller, spokeswoman for Providence Mission Hospital. She devoted more than 28 years to nursing and will be remembered for the fun-loving and positive spirit that she shared with everyone. She will be so dearly missed. Dark loved to go dancing in places packed with people. She took great pride in being the fun-loving grandmother to her nine grandchildren, playing board games and card games, dressing up in goofy costumes, taking them to concerts on the lake, amusement parks, tide pools, and the zoo. I feel like she's at the gates of heaven, so excited for the party that is about to begin, wrote friend Elkins. She just loved people and was an amazing nurse for understanding so much of human nature. She's going to have a good time up there keeping an eye on things for us all she said. She just embodied lead with love. I'm so lucky God placed her in my life as a part of my calling to nursing and my first couple of years of practice. She made the worst situations always seem like God's beautiful, sometimes ridiculous, but always perfect plan. It is a friendship I will miss terribly. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and let me introduce my guests to you. Dr. Nagi M. Shafiq is a medical doctor with postgraduate degree with a postgraduate degree in public health, working as a researcher with the Korea Health Policy Project at Harvard Medical School. He has more than 35 years' experience in both clinical and public health in Egypt, Algeria, Yemen, Cambodia, DPR, Korea, India, Indonesia, and Thailand. For more than 30 years, he worked overseas with different organizations, including UNDP, HealthNet International, Doctors Without Borders, the World Health Organization, and UNICEF. From 2001 to 2019, he worked intermittently in DPR Korea for UNICEF and the World Health Organization. In 2017, 2018, and 2019, he took three assignments with UNICEF to the Democratic People's Republic of Korea to conduct a field monitoring visits. See Yuni Ryder is a research assistant for the Korea Health Policy Project at Harvard Medical School. She's a medical student at the University of Michigan Medical School and is currently earning a master's degree in clinical research through the Michigan School of Public Health. She's a former recipient of the State Department's Critical Language Scholarship to study Korean at Yonsei University, Wanju campus. Before medical school, Yun-hee served as a Peace Corps health volunteer in Togo, West Africa, and is passionate about global health and global surgery. My third guest is Dr. Ki-B Park. Dr. Park is the director of the Korea Health Policy Project at Harvard Medical School, where he studies the geopolitical factors influencing health in North Korea and the relationships between international security, health, and human rights and health diplomacy. Since 2007, he has visited North Korea over 20 times to work alongside North Korean doctors, as well as to support country-driven health system strengthening efforts. His last visit was in November of 2019. 
He's a member of the National Committee on North Korea and the Council of Korean Americans. He received his MD from Rutgers Medical School and an MPH from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Nagi, Ki, and Yunhee, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to start the way I usually do, which is to find out where people are calling from and what the pandemic situation looked like there. And for this, I'd like to start with Nagi. Can I ask you that question first, please? Uh, you mean the situation where? In, uh, where I, uh, in where Egypt? Are, where are you are now, right. Uh, okay. Well, um, um, uh, the, we are entering the fourth wave. Cases are increasing. Uh, and so the number of death, um, the number of vaccination was um, a little bit slow before, but now started to uh, getting a momentum. But again, the uh, total number of uh, doses up to now, not more than 15 million, which is uh, comparing to if, if you consider the population of 104, uh, 104 million population. Uh, the government is targeting 40% of the population to be fully vaccinated before the end of the year, and they are getting the, uh, the vaccines necessary for that. All right, thank you for that. Uh, Yunhee, let me ask you the same question. Sure. Um, so right now I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan, because I'm doing my master's here. Um, from a student perspective, things have gone relatively back to normal, quote unquote, we're having in-person classes. Um, from the medical student side, we're back in the wards. There was a time when it, the pandemics first started where we had time off of the wards. Um, but here, um, Ann Arbor is a little bit of a bubble, I think, compared to Michigan and the rest of the country, but um, people are still wearing masks, even though they're vaccinated, and we're starting the kind of the third vaccination rollout, um, at least for healthcare workers right now. Um, but yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll come to this in our discussion later, but what a time to be a medical student. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> definitely. It's been um, quite a learning experience, for sure. And you, must have you. you must have colleagues who have just entered the healthcare workforce who have already got COVID experience. Yes, sir. I think specifically the interns who started last year um, definitely um, kind of hit the ground running in ICUs and had to um, learn on the fly. Dr. Park, let me turn to you. Same question. Where are you calling from and how's it looking there? Yeah, so I'm in Boston and um, you know, we've had a fairly high uptake of vaccines here. We're hopeful to resume sort of normal life until the Delta variant hit us hard. Um, but most places are remaining open. For instance, the school's open, the students are having classes. Um, our, our, our project, the Korea Health Policy Project is considered a dry lab. So we're actually uh, still doing remote meetings uh, over Zoom. But most places are open. Uh, restaurants are open, stores are open. Now there uh, have uh, been a new uh, uh, mask mandate uh, because of the Delta. But other than that, uh, life seems to be uh, getting back on track somewhat. That vaccination rate in Massachusetts, I haven't looked at it recently, but it's quite high, isn't it? Yeah, we're, we're actually proud of that fact, Scott. <laughs> uh, New Englanders have been, have been very good about that. Even the conservative ones? 
I think so. I mean, not it's not everyone. That's for sure. You know, <laughs> but we, we, for, yeah. by and large, uh, most people. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, it's it's a the the culture here is more receptive to vaccines, but we do have some you know vaccine hesitancy. I've been asking guests if they would be willing to share a memory of this COVID time, and I call it the impossible assignment because it's so hard to pull one out. But I'd like to to ask you, Dr. Park. Let me start with you. Something from this time period that really resonates for you or sticks with you as as your experience of this of this time. Well, I think from a work related standpoint, you know, we have fellows and research associates, you know, students like you need. Typically, we gather in uh, in Boston. But because of the uh, pandemic, we had to go to a virtual platform. And uh, on one hand, it's frustrating. You know, it's this two-dimensional world that we live in. But on the other hand, it's uh, opened up a whole new set of um, uh, relationships that I think were not so possible before. For instance, uh, we've had uh, research associates from uh, 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 parts of the world where they couldn't afford to come to U.S., right? But now they can join in the Zoom call, same way as, you know, people from high-income countries. So that have it has leveled some of the entry, uh, the barriers to entry, uh, to be getting involved in. You know, I work in global health and global surgery, and and it's it's been a welcome addition. Yunhe, let me ask you that same question about um, something that sticks with you about this time. Definitely, I think, like you said, as a medical student, this has been super interesting to really get the core of my education over a pandemic. Um, so I think. For me, when I look at what stands out, um, once we returned back on the wards, like the pandemic was still, you know, it's still going on. And I think for me, it was just seeing the way that it impacted patients, like in terms of having visitor policies and there's different hospice rules and things like that. So definitely, even though I might not have been directly working in an ICU full of COVID patients, um, I definitely saw the impacts of different policies that were, that were happening. Nagi, I want to ask you the same thing, the same question, if you wouldn't mind sharing well, something at this time. Well, I'm retired, and all I was doing before the pandemic was going on uh, short missions. And, uh, of course, the pandemic limited this uh, capacity also. Uh, uh, other uh, overseas meetings or something like that are all replaced by, by now by uh, through the Internet. Uh, but anyway, we are doing some uh, good work, also research or something like that, which might help other people also. So uh, we're going to turn our conversation. Thank you for that. We're going to turn our conversation to North Korea. I think we'll probably, we might refer to it as the DPRK or North Korea or the Democratic People's Republic of Korea so that listeners know we might use those interchangeably. And I, what I'd like to do is get a sort of baseline just to start. Dr. Park, I'm going to ask you this first. Um, about public health in North Korea before the pandemic. So what kind of baseline are we looking at? What do we know? And, and maybe in, in, in comparison to countries of a comparable size or a comparable GDP, um, how do you think about the healthcare outcomes and measures of North Korea before the pandemic? Oh, fair question, right? And so North Korea's uh, health system um, you know, some of many people may think that it's a dilapidated, you know, shacks and uh, somewhat maybe even compared to some of the low income countries uh, in sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia. That's not the case. And in some ways, North Korea actually had exceeded South Korea in health metrics in the 70s and 80s. 
And so they had a very strong health system, and the Constitution guarantees universal health care, uh, free health care for all. And they have massive uh, health workforce with doctors and training and nurses, and they have a very centralized health system. But then there was the, uh, the Great Famine uh, of the 1995, uh, 1990s, along with the collapse of the Soviet bloc. And probably Nagi can give us a better context on what happened since then, uh, along with international cooperation. Nagi, go ahead. I, I would love to hear your con your your sense of uh, that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I totally agree with what uh, Key said. Mentioned about the health system, and uh, the health system there is uh, is uh, based on the prevention. And as you know, if you if you if you if you focus on the prevention, you can save a lot of money. And also, there is an important fact in the education of population on health issues, considering that you have. 100% literacy there, not only boys, boys and girls, all are literate. So that helps also in the health education. Uh, uh, as also he mentioned that the health professional, that they are, that the, the ratio of health professionals to the population is one of the highest in the southeastern region. And one more important thing that you have, uh, they are trained on traditional and allopathic medicine, so they can do without the, the modern medicine in case they don't have. Although I cannot guarantee that it's effective at 100%. Uh, as um, he mentioned that uh, the health system was working well, and uh, after the, uh, the, 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 the failure of the ex-Soviet uh, ex -Soviet Union and uh, also, they were, they were hit by many uh, natural disasters. So actually, they, uh, they, they, there was economic problems that reflected on the capacity of the country to run this extensive health system. Uh, and of course, everybody knows about uh, how many people died during this uh, mid-90s. And it ended up that... North Korea has nothing, no option except to call for international assistance. Mm -hmm. And many international organizations came in after that. And when they started, they started on basic issues like treatment of diarrheal disease, respiratory tract infection in children, uh, uh, something like maternal health, uh, providing some basic equipment. Um, and treating of uh, malnutrition in children, strengthen the immunization system there, and uh, provision of some essential medicine and uh, ensuring safe delivery. That were the basic things that the international humanitarian organization worked on it. After that, things started to improve. And uh, actually the North Korean were confident that they can do after that, but just a gap that they need the international help and after that we can go away. But during this time, there was some kind of uh, realization of the government when they have this contact with the international community that they were missing something. They realized that there is a, a, a health, a knowledge gap. So that's why they, the international 
humanitarian organization continued to exist there for a longer time. And after that, they started to be eager to learn. And we noticed that they didn't care much about what we provide, medicine or, 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 or whatever, materials. They really were interested to know more. And they were pushed to know more and to work hard. And that's what I really appreciate about them. Unlike many countries, uh, when you work in international organization, you find some people say, ask about the per diem or what, uh, what benefit they can get. But for the North Korean, really, they were very keen to learn. Hmm. Um, after that, of course, I think that there were some improvement in every field in the knowledge and they have some overseas contact and they send some people for the WHO uh, sponsor some uh, scholarships in India, China or Thailand. Uh, but after that came the sanctions that again, slow things down. Before we thank you for that really important overview and, and that moment in the 90s. And before we leave that, Yunhi, I want to bring you in on this as well. Um, what was the scale of loss at that time? Any, do, do we have a, hard, a sense of hard numbers of how many people died in that famine and wave of disasters in the 1990s? Nagi? Uh, that was not accurate, but some people estimate at 1 million population were lost. But again, it is not, it is an estimate because nobody can tell you, uh, uh, the, the real number. But at least, at least the, uh, 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 the North Korean now even admit that there were a lot of, uh, lives lost during this crisis. Yonhee, let me bring you in on this as well. This question of how you compare North Korea to other countries in terms of health. Well, it's really tough to, uh, to, to compare because uh, the system in North Korea is unique. And uh, even in terms, I cannot compare with other countries in terms of GDP or terms of, because it, it is a unique country, have its, its own system, its own values. I, I have to start, try to understand everything from the very beginning, not like any other country. Uh, what I think is that they were trying to do things in their own way. And, uh, and if you know that uh, you heard about the Juchi idea, uh, I don't know, you are familiar with the Juchi idea? No, I think our audience would, would be appreciative to know what that is. Uh, well, uh, it, it is, it is the, the ideology that uh, it depends on that the country should be strong economically and militarily, and they should depend on themselves in everything. Or some people uh, say it in a very short words like self-reliance. And uh, actually they have a very special uh, uh, type of socialism. It's not the same like when they were in the Eastern Bloc, because even during this time, they were different. They are, they were not like the uh, ex-Soviet uh, Union or ex-Bulgaria or uh, Romania or something like that. They have their own ways of doing things. So uh, going back to the question is that how I compare it to them. Uh, really they were uh, from the very beginning, 
they made sure in their institution that health and social services are guaranteed to people. And they uh, uh, actually achieved some kind of universal coverage by the 70s and some kind of equality. And the, the, the good thing about them also, for example, you have the first level, which in Korea it's called the re-level or the health center at the, uh, at the village or a small unit or administrative unit. Uh, the doctor there, they stay in place. Many countries, and I, and I think all of us are aware of this, you assign doctors to go to there and they don't go on paper only. But in Korea, they are there, they are staying there, and they call them household doctor or section doctors. And every one of them is responsible for 100 or 130 families. They have bicycles, they go and visit them, follow up patients. They are active in immunization and also in the health education. And you can see even when you go to the uh, health centers, you find on the walls, they, they, because they don't have enough money, they're everywhere there are local painters or artists. They are used in the propaganda. So they paint on the walls of the health center while the women are waiting, they talk, the, the, the painting showed them the nutrition, the delivery, how to deal with the children, many things, poisoning, mm. many things Interesting. you can see there. Mm. Anyway, it's, it's a long story yeah. and I don't no, want I, to go. Well, it's incredibly valuable because of the amount of time that you've, all, that you've spent there. And I think, you know, it's not a place in the world that most people outside of North Korea have been. So all of those details you're explaining are incredibly valuable, I think, for those of us who are trying to understand what's going on there today. Thank you for that. Yunhee, let me bring you in as well. Again, this sort of question of how you think about North Korea compared to other countries. Yeah, I, I agree with what has been said. It's hard, it's hard to do a comparison just because there's a different environment that North Korea operates in in terms of there's been a long problem with um, funding for humanitarian aid um, difficulties, um, even with humanitarian aid due to sanctions. Um, so it's hard to compare. But if we look at just numbers and statistics, um, like, for example, their maternal mortality uh, ratio, um, uh, if, if we look at like the DHS from 2014 is 65.9 per 100,000 uh, live births. So that would put it like if you think about countries like Kyrgyzstan or Vanuatu or um, Honduras, those kinds of countries have similar uh, maternal mortality rates. And then for stunting, if you look at um, it's actually gone down a lot in terms of the prevalence or rate of stunting. So in 2012, it was 28 percent. 2017, it's now 19 percent. And there are, you know, issues with malnutrition still, um, but it's definitely trending downward. Um, and other countries with around 19 percent would be like Uzbekistan or Panama.
So stunting means growth isn't achieved the level that you might expect because of malnutrition or other factors? Exactly. Okay. All right. So I just want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID calls. We're talking about COVID in North Korea today with Yunhee Ryder, Nagi Shafiq, and Ki Park. And I want to turn now to actually talking about how North Korea has dealt with the pandemic. So um, Ki, let me bring you back in on this. Um, give us sort of the 30,000 foot view here, and then we'll dive in on certain aspects of it. But um, how has the DPRK tried to deal with COVID? Yeah, I think first thing I would say is that for them, the pandemic, the COVID-19 threat is much more than just a simple public health threat. They see it as a, an, as a, as a threat to their national security. So the the, organis- the body that is actually directing the COVID-19 policies is actually above the Ministry of Public Health, although they have a lot of input into it. So if you see there, uh, uh, the, the actions that they've taken, they were early and they were aggressive. They shut down their borders even before the Chinese shut down their borders. Uh, and then, you know, they've been in isolation since uh, January of 20, uh, uh, 2020. And I think their public health measures, these are, you know, low tech, but highly effective measures in containing pandemics have been really effective. And I think when they say that they have not uh, uh, detected a, any confirmed any COVID cases in, inside their borders, I like to think that it's more likely than not. Just to follow up on that, you said they were they were faster than than China, which, which is really quite remarkable. Um, the context of a of a lockdown, of course, and other sort of kind of non pharmaceutical interventions, masking and things like that, that people in the West um, went along with early on, and then pretty quickly were trying to get out of. How does that? sort of culturally within North Korea, to the best you can understand it. How does that work there? The the government orders a lockdown. That just happens? Is there any discussion of that? I mean, how does that actually roll out? We talk, I think these days, we talk very loosely about a lockdown. And of course, we know in many countries, not just the United States, it's incredibly complicated just logistically. And then, of course, culturally, people push back on it. How should we understand that in North Korea, Dr. Park? You know, if you look at China, you know, with over a billion people, and when they institute a lockdown, they're able to enforce that, right? Their ability to execute these kinds of public health measures is unparalleled. And I think North Korea is right on there, you know, as, as one of the most effective enforcers of this kind of policies. They're highly effective. Nagi or Yuni, what do you all think? Yeah, um, uh, I might say that, uh, uh, first of all, the relationship between North Korea and China is uh, very close. And you have a lot of people from North Korea in China also. So I think that they have got information about something is happening before most of the people. And uh, if I may remind you about in the article, in our article, we wrote about the experience of the uh, 2006-2007 measles outbreak. Uh, what we didn't write in this article, because I was there, is that we found out later that that was spilled over from the borders with China, because it started on the border with China. So they had an experience about the impact of, uh, of course, there were a lot of crossing the border, but uh, in the uh, recent years, there were more strict measures at the borders. 
And uh, uh, you can see also there is not a lot of movement in the borders and there is strict measure, whether from the Chinese or from the North Korean side. And there were wires now. It's not like before. Before we used to go by car and you see the, the other side uh, across the river, Tumen River or... Uh, 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 but but now it is it's closed. So, and in the same time also, North Korea they know very well from the experience also to a little extent the experience of SARS before that this was the only way to prevent themselves. And I remember that during the SARS crisis, all the planes coming from Beijing. Uh, a bus take them and to, to a hotel near the airport. They stay there for two weeks, and there was no exceptions. I saw myself a minister going there, so they are very strict in preventive measures. Uh, in the same time, also, given the situation that they have lack of equipment, medicine, and all these things, they know that. This is the only way for them. They cannot afford to have one case. So it might, it might seem or look very strange, drastic measures, but if you were in their place, you can find that this is the only way they have. And, and just, I wanna to come to the vaccination um, part of this discussion in a second, but just one thing um, that Key, you said, I just wanna underline, make sure I understand. When you say that in North Korea, the pandemic is felt as a national security threat. I mean, I, th I think we understand, we've kind of grown used to that in the United States, for example, that the military, different branches of the military do disaster modeling and public health modeling as a way to understand force readiness, for example. But I think you mean something a little different here, or maybe, maybe you mean the same thing. When you talk about a national security threat as a pandemic, what does that actually mean as you understand it in North Korea? I think what I what I the way I see it is that the protection of the North Korean citizenry is 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 uh, is, is the most important thing. So it will they'll mobilize anything and, and institute policies as long as they're able to, to protect their people. So you know when they institute policies like uh, border closures, including all stopping of all cargo and trading with their main trading partner China, with seventy percent drop in their you know the, the, the volume of trade. To them, it's a cost of protecting their people. And if you look at things, uh, policies like um, uh, uh, things that wash up under 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 shores, they were given ex uh, explicit instructions not to touch it. And and if and, and and worse yet, if they're people, to shoot people at sea and burn them. And that's what happened to a South Korean who was actually trying to go to North Korea. And normally they would, you know, arrest them and detain them, and and, and arrest. But what they did was they shoot the, they shot the poor guy and 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 burned him at sea. That's because that's the protocol to to keep the border safe from from the COVID. You know when they sent the leaflets from South Korea, the propaganda leaflets over at balloons. For them, that's weaponized. You know biological weapons, right? Because this is foreign material coming over the borders. So those are the kind of examples where you know you start to. That's how they think is is a threat. Um, you know, attack on their their their, their citizenry. Yunhe, let me also bring you in on this on this question, and then we'll pivot to talk about vaccination. But things that you've been tracking in terms of how the non-pharmaceutical 
you know, the lockdowns or other sorts of things that North Korea did to try to cope with the vaccine, or excuse me, cope with the pandemic early on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just to echo, they responded very early. I mean, by like February, basically the entire trade or border with China had had closed down. You know, there was mass mandates by February as well. And I think from my perspective, I really wasn't even thinking of COVID in the United States and really having an impact on my life till like end of March. So I think that's fairly early. Um, and like Dr. Park was saying, the, um, the trade, you know, jumped down from, if you look at Chinese trade data, both the exports and imports, you know, went down 70, 80%. Um, mostly there's a huge dip in February of 2020, and it's only now starting to recover. You know, he, Dr. Shafiq was talking about the this, um, period in the 90s and the enormous toll that that took, um, you know, a health system that um, actually, I think, to many outsiders might be surprised to learn was was functioning very well within its context and then fell apart um, at that time and then was being rebuilt. What what do we see now to the extent that you can say anything about it, the impact of these lockdowns and closing cross-border trade um, with China? Do we have a sense of how that's impacting the population there in North Korea? I think definitely. I mean, whenever you close down a border, there's going to be consequences. For example, um, very few, if any, medication, at least since the end of um, uh, 2020 and just started back up in July of 2021, was coming across the border. And now they might have stocks, you know, um, of medication that they could be using, but there's very little, at least formal trade that's going across. Um, and then also humanitarian aid organizations, most of them have not been able to um, really function in the pandemic. Um, so definitely um, some people talk about also um, the, the shortage of food and things like that um, in Korea just because of the pandemic. Um, and it's definitely an issue. There's been estimates on um, food shortages as well. Um, so definitely there's things to think about, malnutrition, definitely lots of problems um, and side effects of closing the border and trying to protect from COVID. Just want to remind everyone you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today to C. Yunhee Ryder, Nagi Shafiq, and Ki Park about COVID in North Korea. And they came together to write a piece, which you can find at 38north.org, and it's a really well-written essay. I don't know how you did it, actually. Great economy of words, but an enormous amount of information there. The title is North Korea's Vaccination Capabilities, Implications for COVID-19 campaign. I hope everybody will check out that that article. And Yoni, I want to give you the first pass at this. How did the three of you come together to write this? Interesting question. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we're all part of this. There's always a backstory with these kind of things, <laughs> and I always want to know it. <laughs> sure. So we're all part of this um, Korea Health Policy Project, um, which is through Dr. Park's, um, you know, work in lab at Harvard. Um, I personally came to this because I'm interested in doing this type of work and um, um, improving, you know, the lives of North Korean people. Um, and so I reached out to Dr. Park to see if I could be involved um, in any capacity um, as a medical student and as a master's student now. And I've just been really humbled and blessed to have been able to like hear all of these amazing things and really learn about um, from people, from experts like Dr. Shafiq and Dr. Park. Um, and we also have other people on our team who have on the ground experience in North Korea um, and have really been able to give 
lots of insights and have really guided um, our research questions. So that's been um, really exciting. And just learning about how to do research in North Korea has been exciting too. So let's talk a little bit about the, um, the analysis and the piece, Dr. Park. Let me start with you on this. When we start thinking about what a mass vaccination campaign um, for COVID will look like in North Korea, what are some of the factors we have to consider? Well, so let me just backtrack a little bit about how this uh, paper came together. So as Yuni mentioned that, you know, uh, under my lab, we have the Korea Health Policy Project. And our aim is quite simple. There's really paucity of good analysis on North Korea's health and all the factors that influence that. If you talk to experts, these are North Korean experts, they spew out stuff that has, has zero uh, accuracy. You know, and there's things, they say things like, well, North Korea, they, they, they don't, you know, they, they, they don't spend any money on their people, on health. Well, that's not true. We know that, I've seen evidence of it, all right? So, and then they said, well, they can't maintain a cold chain to, 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 to store these vaccines. So we said, you know what, why don't we do an analysis on what, what's they, what is their cold chain capabilities and what are the deployment cap capabilities? And Nagi was the MVP. I mean, he had direct hand-on, you know, hands-on knowledge about the UNICEF, uh, the, the campaign during the measles. He's been actually visited some of these cold chain facilities himself and has done inspections. And then we get rock stars like Yuni, you know, who's able to put it all together for us and come up with beautiful infographics. So it's a... You know, these things happen all the time in our lab, but this particular piece uh, got a lot of mileage. We were covered it, uh, uh, Yuan Hop picked it up, and then of course you read it, and then you wanted to do more stories on it. So I'm just grateful to, for our team. So I forget what was your question, Scott. No, that's good. no you were, I, I think it's one of the reasons I like to ask that question about how these research teams come together, because it actually shows how COVID um, and any disaster really though provides an opportunity for people different talents come together and, and work and it sounds like your lab is a, is a sort of a uh, clearinghouse for that kind of um, that kind of collaboration Nagi I want to you were described as an MVP um, so I would like to hear uh, from you and I think particularly this previous um, knowledge you have about previous vaccination campaigns in North Korea is really relevant to this what are you looking at in terms of how a vaccination rollout I guess, is already happening or just about to happen in North Korea. I'm not sure of the timing there. It's been slow in other parts of the world compared to, say, the United States or Europe. I'm in South Korea. I think we've just achieved 75% um, uptake of one dose. I have only had one dose. So far, I'll have my second next week, and I think I'm pretty much pretty representative. I think most Koreans, South Koreans, 18 and up will be fully vaccinated by the end of next month. But what's happening in North Korea along those lines? Well, there is no vaccination against COVID-19. And uh, North Korea was part of the COVAX, would have a dealing with COVAX. Uh, but uh, apparently, they were examining the possibilities of having vaccination. And uh, there was, in the beginning, talk about sending 1.6 million doses of AstraZeneca to North Korea, but I'm not quite sure because some people say there was a delay because the factory of the Serum Institute of India stopped exporting and some people say they refused it. I'm not quite sure, but definitely uh, last month they refused um, three million doses of the Chinese vaccination. I think it was Sinovac. And 
they said it in a very beautiful way. They say that uh, maybe other countries need it more than us. And I'm not quite sure what are the motives. There are many explanations about this. Um, nobody can tell what exactly the real motive of refusing uh, the vaccination. Um, uh, and we don't know what they are uh, up to. Uh, but I think that, I think that even, even assuming that the North Korean will say, okay, we'll take the vaccination. It will not go like this within a few weeks. You need preparation. You need to have a, a revision of your cold chain. And that's what we were doing every year in TPRK because there are consumable. There are things like in the cold chain, you have to check before every big campaign. And this is extraordinary campaign. You will cover the whole population. So you have to check, and this is not an easy process. And perhaps you will need also to bring some of the expatriates to the country to help in this process, uh, training. And many things also you will need to do before going into the process of vaccination. Uh, so I don't know if this is also was considered also because as far as we know that there is no international organization, even embassies left uh, 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 Pyongyang. Mm. And I don't know how uh, uh, they will return back. How, for example, but, but definitely you will need some assistance, a uh, few expats to help in this process. But I'm not, I cannot say why they refuse this. And, but all we know that there is no vaccination, that's for sure. Maybe this is a key. I'm going to ask you this, and then I'll get perspective from the rest of you. This may be a very naive question, but isn't this, isn't this a moment for diplomacy? I mean, it's a moment for international aid and compassion, but also in a sort of realpolitik of North Korea uh, relations with the West, with Europe and the United States. In the past, something like this would have been seen as a moment to open the door, at least a little crack for some possibility of, of peace. No, Scott, you're absolutely right. One of the motivations for us to write this piece was to start a, a some, some buzz around the idea of, you know, what vaccines could be offered to North Korea. Uh, there's a lot of interest on the, on the donor side. For instance, the U.S. has you know, spoken about uh, providing vaccines if North Korea asks for it, which I don't, think, I don't think they'll ever do that. And then, of course, South Korea has also indicated that they'd be willing to provide it. And then, how do we? So, so if that's the case, and can we provide some technical, you know, analysis on what's what's feasible? And what was interesting was that initially we didn't think the mRNA vaccines would be a candidate in North Korea. And 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 upon further, uh, uh, you know, uh, a study, it, it was possible because. Uh, if it's limited to a specific, let's say, a central region like Pyongyang region, and if it was done in a very uh, rapid way. Um, you know, so, I mean, maybe one of the other persons could talk about how that could, you know, the rollout could happen for, with mRNA vaccines in North Korea. Well, let me, Yunhee, let me bring you in on, on this as well, because I think this question, and you write about this in the essay, I think an assumption that people have made without even troubling it is, well, obviously North Korea can't manage the cold chain, so then we just can't even think about the mRNA vaccines. You take that on in the essay as part of your analysis. Yeah, and, and I think 
even more than Coltrane, like they have a history with the, like what Dr. Shafiq was saying with the uh, measles vaccine of rapid dissemination of vaccines um, and kind of these massive vaccine campaigns, but going to the mRNA vaccines, you know, those mRNA vaccines that we're talking about Pfizer and Moderna, they require kind of ultra cold temperatures. So um, Pfizer requires minus 70 degrees Celsius and then uh, Moderna requires minus 20 degrees Celsius. Um, and so potentially that could involve um, North Korea having to um, procure or obtain these super deep freezers. However, there is um, a way if you were to focus on a specific smaller population and do a rapid dissemination of vaccinations, um, if you do it within 30 days, they can be kept at normal refrigerator or normal vaccine temperatures of two to eight degrees Celsius. So that is a possibility. Um, and then in terms of other cold chain capabilities, I, I think the um, impression, especially when you read some news articles, like you were saying, is that, oh, well, North Korea can't do this at all. It would just be impossible. Um, but, you know, North Korea has been doing vaccines for, for a long time, and um, there is an established way to do it. Um, and then a lot of people don't realize things like smaller things that we brought up in the articles, like there are um, solar panels and things like that. In case the electricity goes out, there are methods of keeping and um, disseminating vaccines. Let me ask this, this question about vaccine hesitancy. I, I have, I've stopped making assumptions now about North Korea in this, in this conversation. Do we know anything about vaccine hesitancy in North Korea? It's a concept, you know, when you have an idea of a place as a totalitarian, sort of authoritarian state in which nobody can express any, any opinion, um, it's easy to say, well, yeah, it'll just be 100% uptake of a vaccine. You're telling a much more nuanced story today, but I wonder, do you have any kind of data about uh, how that might work in North Korean society? And, and, and let me add a sort of sub-question to that is, if they're not able to vaccinate 100% of the population because of supply, they will also have to make hard decisions about who does and who doesn't get it. So I guess my question is about who would you expect to be vaccinated in North Korean society when and if the vaccine comes in. I'm not sure if anybody in, in this call wants to address that question, but it's something that's on my mind. I'll take a part of that question, Scott. You name me one country where the wealthy and the powerful did not get in front of the line. You know, we're seeing it now globally with the rich country, yeah. you know, cleaning we'll out the here a long time. Yeah. And then now we're going to pick a, a country of 25 million people and say, oh, make sure you, you know, you provide this to everybody in your country because, you know, that's the right thing to do. Right. Oh, the, the hypocrisy is crazy in my, in my opinion. Yeah. So we would expect it to, to play out in the, in the same way, I guess. In that and way. I will add, you know, the, 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 you know, I will add that, North Korea knows this is a public health problem. This is not a isolated disease outbreak. This is a whole country has to be vaccinated eventually. So I, I have no doubt that they will ultimately vaccinate the entire population like they do for all the children's vaccines. They get 98, 97% vaccination rates nationally. Just before we lose this, um, this point about the diplomacy, I, I just wanted to circle back to one thing that um, you said, Dr. Park. Um, about the possibility of South Korea providing North Korea with vaccine. Um, I don't, how much, I don't want you to ask you to predict the future necessarily, but do you think there's any opportunity for that? So I'd like to hear uh, Nagi's opinion about this because it's 
there's the political dimension to uh, to to the diplomacy aspects, right? Because you don't you know diplomacy necessarily means there's a quid pro quo, uh, or you know. So in this case, maybe opening up dialogue, maybe building up of goodwill, and and then and and, and open to other. Uh, Let's say the, the military aspects of, of of the relationship, you know, with North Korea, but uh, um, you know, um, North, North Korea will probably not accept bilateral uh, assistance from either South Korea or or U.S. because they might see it as pl placing them in a position of weakness because they're considered you know adversaries at the moment. Nagi, let me give you a, a chance to weigh in on, on this issue of how you might expect it eventually to play out in terms of who's going to be supplying these vaccines. Well, um, I, I agree with uh, uh, Key about what he said, that uh, for, the, for, the, for the time being, they will not accept any assistance except through the international organization. But if I go to the question of uh, uh, this is an an opportunity for political solution. Actually, it is not new because the existence of the international organization in North Korea had impacted the situation there. And there were a lot of changes happened since the 90s till now. And I have witnessed myself a lot of change in the behavior of the people working with us the Korean working with us. And I can give you examples of that. But what I mean is that there are changes going on since long time. And it is only waiting for a political breakthrough and you will see this country, how they are going to uh, 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 work with the international community. They don't have this... Um, myth about dealing with the, with anybody and they can tell you for example like uh, uh, for example japanese are the enemies and they have, have bad history with the japanese but in the same time they can tell you that japanese goods are are good quality they don't have any complex in dealing they are in short they are practical pragmatic you can say and they are survival, not suicidal. They can deal with the changes in the world. And I think that any honest observer can tell you in the last 10, since I started to, when I arrived by the end of 2001, I started to notice great changes in end of 2002. And it continues, continues since that time. There are, big changes happening there. So uh, I think that the opportunity of political breakthrough is started since long time. Hmm. And it is a question between these two countries. But again, I agree with you that this is an opportunity, not only with North Korea, but with many countries in the world also under political sanctions. I mean, at this situation right now, mm. we are talking about a pandemic that threatened the life of everybody on earth. It is not about, so 
for for one moment we just forget about what we we hate or love or something like that and we start to work with the people and after that we can fight again no problem but this is an extraordinary situation and i really hope because by the end even if you have the vaccination 100% and then you have the booster doses you will realize you need uh, uh, to have economic relation with other countries so other countries will not open unless they have also vaccinated their people so eventually it is a global situation so we have to look at it from this perspective what well, we're just about on on time i want to just kind of do a quick round with each of my guests if there's anything that we touched on you wanted to elaborate on or or maybe share as we're closing out here the research question on your mind going forward in terms of north korea and, and this and this pandemic leave us with a final thought but before i turn to that i just want to say i mean first of all it's been a really mind-expanding conversation but that last point that Dr. Shafiq made it's a really stunning point, and I think people need to really think about that. That we have lapsed back, and I guess I'm I'm a little loose with my pronouns here, so let me say I I have lapsed back into this idea of the, the pandemic and how it's playing out nationally. But I think you've brought us back into this notion, Dr. Shafiq, of a sort of a the importance of this opportunity as a moment to think about the globe and interrelations across borders. Um, in a way that maybe we haven't thought since since the Cold War. So I'm going to leave that there, but that's a really important point for us to to think with. Final thoughts, uh, Yunhee, let me turn to you first on this. Yes, definitely. I think health is always a great opportunity because most people, or at least they should, <laughs> want what is best for um, the people and the health of the North Korean people. So it's definitely an opportunity to um, all get on the same page. Um, but for me, um, yeah, I think this is definitely fascinating. I think at the end of the day, we we believe as a research group that North Korea can vaccinate, um, um, does have the cold chain capabilities to vaccinate. And I think for me, I also am looking at Chinese customs data and exports and imports going into the country from China since the pandemic has started. And I do get concerned about um, the lack of medication coming into the country and medical equipment and the drop that we have been seeing over the pandemic and it's just really a call um, on not only people in the international community but humanitarian aid organizations that there's definitely going to be um, impacts from that um, and that we probably should be looking into and addressing so dr shafiq last um, thoughts for you well, also, I'm very concerned about the people in North Korea, not only in terms of vaccination against COVID-19, but because I lived there, I worked with the people, I traveled a lot in the country. And last time I was there in consultancy with UNICEF in 2019. Uh, and I, I went to so many places in the country, I extensive visit to the country to follow up on the treatment of malnutrition in children. UNICEF at that time made an initiative to screen at the, at, the, at the first level before it was only at the first referral level at the county or district level. And at that time they were well-trained and we have the supplies and the doctors there were 
very clever in detecting cases, referring cases, and treating children. Now, after one and a half years of closure, I wonder what's happening right now. I really, when I think about it, I'm really scared to, to think how the children are suffering there. Do they have supplies? How they do now to treat malnutrition? I'm just, I'm just want to remind that about other daily needs, normal immunization program, delivery of women in, in the hospitals, many other things, how they are managed, not only the vaccination. Dr. Key Park, let me let you have the last word on this. Yeah, first, Scott, thank you for having us on. This was a, just an absolute uh, pleasure to do this. Um, you know, I, I had an opportunity to speak to a, a North Korean a diplomat uh, who's uh, uh, about a month ago. And he went, he, he started off with saying, you know, Dr. Park, it, it, it's astounding how in the U.S. the number of people that have died as a result of COVID has exceeded the number of lives lost in all of the wars that U.S. has fought in history. Yeah. And he just shakes his head. He goes, how does a government... Uh, uh, you know, think that they're doing a good job and they allow so many people to die. And if you use that stick, you know, and then coming from a North Korea, I think there's a lesson for all of us here. It's not, you know, about North Korea. It's really, as an American, I'm appalled that uh, we are allowing uh, uh, the government to to be ineffective and in, in some ways uh, uh, mismanage this, this pandemic. We should not have accepted, you know, over half a million people dying as a result of this pandemic. We have lessons to learn ourselves. And then we're quick to point out, you know, things that are happening in North Korea as, you know, un, uh, 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 human rights violations. Uh, you, you tell that to the, you know, the family of, of someone who died of COVID unnecessarily here in the United States. Just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time today, a special broadcast at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And we've been doing a lot of uh, two-a-day COVID calls this week. There'll be an additional one at 3.30 p.m. this afternoon, Korea time, which um, will be 4.30 p.m. Australia time. And we'll be talking about environmental history in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. I want to thank my guests, Nagi Shafiq, Key Park, and Yuhi Ryder for taking time to educate us about COVID-19 and North Korea. and. Um, can't wait to see what comes next out of your lab. Looking forward to that next publication. Good luck to you all, and thanks for your time today. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.